0: of the chichester psalms we'll also hear the symphony number three and suites one and two from the dybbuk leonard bernstein will conduct the new york philharmonic this week
1: tuesday at noon on wjff
0: welcome to sabrina artel's trailer talk i'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline travel trailer from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I was speaking with a friend the other night about the writing workshop she's just begun leading for the women incarcerated at Rikers Island in New York, and it made me think about this conversation I had with Wally Lamb. I'm excited about speaking with writer Wally Lamb about his book, which he edited and workshopped with women at the York Correctional Institution, a maximum security prison in Connecticut. Couldn't Keep It to Myself, Wally Lamb and the Women of York Correctional Institution, Testimonies from Our Imprisoned Sisters, Regan Books is a powerfully moving collection of debut stories. He writes, I feel that writing honestly and thoughtfully about one's failings is one of the best ways I know to gain insight, the better to prevent failing again. Wally Lamb is the author of the best-selling novels, She's Come Undone, and I Know This Much Is True. His writing reminds us that humanity is often found where no one looks for it. It is with great delight that I welcome you to the show, Wally. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Sabrina.
0: How did this all begin?
1: Well, it began with a phone call, actually. I was uh, packing up my books and uh, about ready to leave my position at the University of Connecticut in the um, creative writing program there, and uh, I thought I was uh, closing the door on teaching, and uh, literally, as I was closing the door, uh, the phone rang, and it was an old friend of mine, a woman named Marge Cohen who I had known in childhood and who had tracked me down. She is the librarian at the York Prison School. She said, you know, there's, uh, there's been quite a bit of sadness at this place, a couple of suicides, several more attempts. The teaching staff is groping around looking for something that might help the women, so we're canvassing the community. And what she asked was uh, would I come down and speak to the women uh, about writing uh, maybe as a, as a healing or a coping tool. So I committed to a 90-minute session, and uh, four years later, I'm still going down to York.
0: You're still going down to York, and, and now you have a book, which is a collaboration with these women. There are 11 essays, uh, stories in this book. Some of the women are still at the York Correctional Facility, and, and others have been released. What sorts of preconceptions did you have about what this would be like, and what, what has transformed in you?
1: Well, you know, I didn't... I, I felt nervous uh, going to the prison for the first time, uh, and in fact, I'm a world-class procrastinator, and I put it off for uh, a number of weeks, and then finally, when I decided to make good on my promise to go down there, I remember sort of clenching onto the steering wheel. I, I wasn't sure what I was going to expect.
0: Uh, and I'm sure that you're asked to do many things.
1: Right. <laughs> I have a difficult time saying no, uh, And but I, in, this, in this case... Um, Almost immediately when I got there, uh, I was glad that I had uh, that I had said yes to this particular commitment.
0: So, could you go back for us to that first day and how sure. this all began? Mm-hmm.
1: I drove up to uh, to the prison. It's a very sort of imposing and institutional setting, as you might imagine. This is a maximum security prison, and in fact, the only facility for women in the state of Connecticut. Uh, there's a guard at the front gate. Um, he okays you in, and then you proceed into the building, and you go through a series of 10 doors. They're, they're electronic doors, so uh, you don't see who's flipping the switches. You just sort of stand there and wait, and then the door opens, and then it closes behind you. And with each closing of the door, uh, I felt a little bit more in prison myself. Mm. Uh, but then when I got to the classroom, 30 women trooped in, and many of them were scowling at me and uh, uh, sort of wary and uh, maybe perhaps a little bit suspicious and um, within 10 minutes it seemed like any other classroom.
0: Had you before thought about writing as something that could help one hope heal uh, work through things?
1: I know that it has. I know that uh, writing has uh, has that ability uh, not only from my own work but also uh, from my teaching. I uh, uh, I worked for 25 years as a high school English teacher and writing coach and uh, and then did a couple of years, as I had mentioned, at the University of Connecticut. And I saw that, uh, particularly in the area of per- the personal essay, uh, when the writer sort of takes a leap and decides to take what's inside and put it onto the page and then take that second leap of faith and share it with other people, that something happens, something gets, something gets unleashed, uh, something uh, that w- that's sort of uh, roiling inside has, a, has an exit. And uh, so I'd seen that in student after student. But of course, the stakes are much higher at a prison, and so uh, there's a greater need for healing.
0: What did you learn working with these women in the prison about prison life itself and the kinds of women that are incarcerated there?
1: I think I was humbled more than anything else. I saw the really very difficult conditions uh, of a maximum security prison. You know, the, the rules and regulations are there for everybody's safety. But I was a bit troubled by um, uh, the fact that that there is sort of a the prisoners are not always treated with human dignity, and and that was disturbing. In the in the classroom, as I said, it seemed like any other classroom. Uh, but the women began to tell stories uh, about their day-to-day life at prison. Uh, things such as uh, the fact that when they visit their kids in the visiting room just how difficult it is to see. They uh, The rules say that they must remain seated while their visitors leave. And so for a woman who hasn't seen her kids in a month or, or six weeks, uh, to, to watch them exit back into their lives, um, and then once that door closes, yes. uh, having to submit to uh, a strip search uh, where her uh, vaginal and anal cavities are, are, are uh, you know examined for contraband and stuff. That's pretty tough stuff. And, and
0: many of the women that are there have had extremely traumatic past abusive backgrounds extreme violence and and then to go into a situation where it's perpetuated
1: yeah the uh, the thing that sort of blew me back against the wall that that very first time i went to york prison uh the school administrator was bringing me on a little tour before we went to the classroom and she was the one who gave me the statistic that is is true at this facility and also i believe nationwide that uh... Uh, Somewhere around 70% of uh, females who are incarcerated have been victims of incest. And I just had never realized that the statistic would be that staggering.
0: I know one of the stories the writer tells about how she killed her abusive husband and then at some point during her imprisonment trying to go to her son's funeral and not even being allowed to stay as long as she had been promised to be with his body.
1: Right, oh, nor could she uh, uh, receive or give comfort to her, uh, to her children, her, other, her surviving children, uh, because the, uh, the Department of Correction had ordered that everybody be evacuated from the funeral parlor when she arrived. So, yeah, just very, very difficult circumstances. Um, that particular writer uh, is a woman named Barbara Lane. She had a very interesting sort of evolution as a writer in the workshop she couldn't. When she joined us, she would; she was a prolific writer, uh, wrote all the time, but she couldn't read her work out loud mm. uh, She because she would start crying immediately. And so uh, somebody else, myself or, or one of the other uh, workshop people, would read it for her, and she'd sit there sobbing, listening.
0: And she's still incarcerated.
1: She's there for, I believe, another four or five years. She was imprisoned in 1996.
0: And that's what to me is so incredible about this book and these stories that these women have written and you have would you say collaborated on with them, mentored them? W- what term would you use? I
1: guess probably more than anything else I've been a, a writing coach. The exciting thing about working uh, with the inmates has been uh, that they really, down to the last woman, has uh, have really strongly invested in revision, which of course is where the real writing happens. So we're talking about drafts you know, 12, 14, Uh, 16, you know, they really, uh, this became very important for them uh, to do the best that they could. And so that's how the work became publishable.
0: I would imagine, too, that in these revisions, it's also a, a chance to work through so many things. What was so painful about reading the stories and also inspiring was to see the humanity uh, in each of these women and the stories of their lives and the different ways in which their experiences came out on the page.
1: Yeah, one of the things that happened to me over the course of the, uh, the four years and, and, and still counting that I've been working there is that I began to see just the, uh, how much more complex it is than, uh, than I had imagined. I, I no longer believe in us versus them. or This
0: idea of like the that. insider versus the outsider.
1: Right. Right, because I see, and uh, so many people who have read the book have had revelations too that gee, you know this this could be me uh, you know it's it's circumstance that uh, that leads so many people to prison as well as as uh, the criminal act itself
0: I'm wondering what connection, if any, you felt working with these women and coaching them with these uh, essays and stories to your novels and the characters in those novels which were very much the outsider that you took uh, and explored characters who were very misunderstood in the world.
1: I didn't realize that uh, that I was sort of exploring similar themes as I had in my novels until about maybe two years into the into this writing project. To sound like uh, my own cliff notes (laughs) here, but but you know when I think about she's come undone, the first book that I that I had written, I've got a main character Dolores who is in a sort of a imprisoned by her obesity uh, and also her hostility, her sort of uh, uh, sarcastic and cutting way of dealing with a world that uh, she feels vulnerable. And then in my second novel, I know this much is true, I explore the lives of of twin brothers, one of whom is schizophrenic. And again, uh, mental illness in a family is another type of of prison, I think. So yeah, um, Mm -hmm. outsiders, also alienation versus connectedness. Those are very much uh, themes that uh, I've been working with all the way through and, and very much are prevalent.
0: What issues came up for you in your own coping with going to these workshops and, and working within the prison system?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, when you see people who take the pain and the hurt and the humiliation um, and move it from outside or to the outside, from inside to outside, and you're sort of there to hear their testimonies, you sort of take on some of that. Uh, it's it's part of uh, it's part of what every teacher does. I think for the purpose of your students' growth, for the purpose of your students' healing. In this case, you become sort of a, a receptacle for that for that pain that's uh, that's leaving them or making them making them stronger by talking about it. Um, so it, it is hard. I, uh, to this day, almost four years later, uh, when I when I go for the Thursday workshop, it usually takes me a day or so to to kind of get over what's happened, what's transpired. Mm-hmm. Not that it's all, it's all tears. Uh, almost every workshop session has tears and laughter, too, because humor is, is a great way to cope with what sometimes seems an unbearable situation. But it, it's exhausting, I, I would have to tell you that. I
0: can imagine, because in reading the stories, and also I've spoken to a couple of the women who have been released and who have their essays in this book, so deeply inspiring and such a reminder of our connection and at the same time uh you know it's it's made me really look at my ideas of the world and uh, the idea of fairness of things being just of uh, you know what it what it is to be a, a human being within this framework
1: right well oh, that means a lot to me that uh, you know that you've had that reaction because you know education has been a big Big piece here, and it's not been easy for the women uh, to reveal. First of all, to one another at a, at a, in a setting uh, where trust is not given easily, to real, reveal to one another the details of their lives, uh, and then to say to take a giant step and say, "Okay, um, now I'm going to go beyond the prison walls and uh, share this with a reading public that I don't know." But what's really guided the women. Through this whole thing is that they they want to get their stories out because they want people to understand on a deeper level.
0: The title itself couldn't keep it to myself this idea of the need for these voices to be heard that was a title that you got from it was from spiritual wasn't it? Mm-hmm.
1: First time that I heard that song was on my very first drive uh, to York Prison, uh, fiddling with the uh, the radio buttons. And as I mentioned before, I was kind of nervous about going there. And uh, this gospel song came on the air. It's called uh, "Said I Said I Wasn't Gonna Tell Nobody." And uh, the second line of the song is "But I couldn't keep it to myself." Mm. Uh, and so I don't know. It was, uh, we were, I had been there for about maybe a year and a half when I mentioned that i heard that song uh the first time that i drove down there and was in fact going to use the line in my novel in progress couldn't keep it to myself uh one of the women asked uh, what what i was going to call my new book Hmm. and uh and somebody said oh uh, it was tabitha rowley she piped up and she said said i wasn't going to tell nobody i know that song and she started Hmm. singing it and uh and so it just seemed a lot more fitting for for the women's huh.
0: compilation, than for the novel. Uh, her story here chronicles is quite humorous. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's humor. It's
1: humor and pathos, but it, which yes. I, I find I find is there in so many of the stories. I'm
0: just curious about uh, any impact for yourself within the spiritual realm uh, in working with these women and what you've gone through, and just the surprises along the way of right. what's uh, of what's happened with uh, making this book. Yeah, I.
1: Thank you for asking that question because it's not asked often. And I'm usually pr- fairly private about it, but yeah, I think this project—not um, so much the book, which I really see as a kind of a, uh, a miraculous byproduct—but the process of working with the women on their writing has really deepened my sense of spirituality. You know, I've, I've been uh, all my life a regular churchgoer, but I, there's, there's, uh, I have a heightened awareness. Uh, really, a connectedness of life, and uh, now I'm 52 years old, and it seems like the older I get, the less I believe in um, in the randomness of things, and I'm not quite sure to this day um, why I was why I was brought to the prison, or or, or if I was brought, um, but uh, I just know that that the work that I've done there uh, really does have a spiritual component to it, and um, and that the women um, have taught me as well. It's not its not all been uh, my giving to them, but I've, I've gotten back so much as well. It
0: seems that within the prison system, and, and specifically within the York Correctional Institution, that life has become more difficult for the prisoners, for the women there, that it began with an idea more of rehabilitation, and it shifted into more punishment. Yeah. with less access for them to things that could actually help them heal. The
1: more, uh, the more deeply involved in this I got, uh, the more curious I became with how prisons had started, and particularly this prison, uh, which at one point in time, at the very beginning, in 1917, when the prison was, uh, uh, was opened, uh, it was called uh, the Connecticut State Farm for Women. And the concept was all about rehabilitation. Uh, it was about taking uh, women from the, primarily from the inner city and putting them uh, in a farm-like setting in the Connecticut shoreline, giving them physical labor. Uh, there was a working farm. There was a nursery. Women grew all the, all the vegetables, not only for the prison, but also for the poorhouses in the area. There was a giving back, and there was a, a, a feeling, um, a sort of a, a message that went out to the women, that you are worth something. Uh, and, and
0: you are part of this community. Something bigger, yes, yes. exactly.
1: And, and I do think that uh, uh, that model has been abandoned uh, largely, and, it, and I think this is across the country, but certainly in Connecticut.
0: Do you think there's a connection with the privatization of, of prisons, of the institution, and there was that shift
1: yeah, that, I that do, occurred? Yeah, I do think that that's part of it. Uh, an example of this would be at York Prison, the women's laborers farmed out businesses,
0: Right, so it's become, the prisons have become part of corporations, really. Right,
1: right. and it's really a a terrific way for uh, businesses to buy into very, very cheap labor. If a woman is, for instance, doing data processing uh, through a prison enterprise, she's working for a private company, a profit-making company, she herself is being credited with maybe 75 cents a day in her account.
0: Right, and with that money, I have been told that she needs to buy toilet paper, sanitary napkins, uh, very basic things with the, with the money that she makes from this work that somebody else is profiting from.
1: Right, and not only is, she, uh, is it incumbent on her to buy these products, but at, uh, at a pretty, pretty healthy markup price as well. And the only place that she can get it is at the prison commissary. Uh, one of the things that that really uh, I was I was surprised at is the extent to which prison, for all its costs to society, is also an enterprise
0: mm-hmm. and uh,
1: and, uh, and makes money for uh, for state institutions.
0: It's uh, it's very disturbing. I'm wondering if you could talk about the controversy right now around the release of this book and what's happening in Connecticut uh, with legal problems.
1: Sure. There was no book that was intended. It came as a byproduct somewhere in, in about the second year. And there was an attempt uh, by me uh, to, to communicate with the state uh, and to be guided by them, not only in terms of the content of the book, but also could the women share in the profits and so forth. Um, and we heard nothing back from the state for a couple of years. We were flabbergasted when uh, when the book was about to be released, and the women, the contributors, began to receive summons there were bills charging them for the cost of their incarceration. Now, These were the women both who are still in prison and have not received a dime for their writing, and also the women uh, who have been released, who have done their time, served served their sentences and been released, uh, and are you know, trying to reestablish themselves.
0: What do you feel about this?
1: Well, I, I feel it's wrong, and I, and I feel it, I mean, the amount of money that the released uh, inmates have made from this book Really modest. It's enough money to uh, maybe buy a used car to get to work, without a whole lot of change left. But they're being uh, they're being socked now with bills uh, in in the in the range of hundreds of thousands of dollars. A woman named Bonnie Forshaw, who is still in prison, has just received a bill for nine hundred thirteen thousand dollars to cover mm. the cost of her imprisonment.
0: Oh, yes, and her story was also just really incredible, uh, uh-huh. and she's become the grandmother, really, hasn't she? Of, yeah, of
1: she's, she's a surrogate grandmother. First of all, a mom, because she's been in prison for so long. Yes. She's a surrogate mother for, uh, for many of the younger inmates, and now she sort of serves as a grandmother unofficially uh, uh, for many of, the, many of the youthful offenders. Uh, she's just a terrific, very giving woman uh, who remains positive despite know, all the harrowing the uh, turning points in her life.
0: Right. And again, she is in prison because she it's just one of those uh, stories where, you know, you, you do begin to think, uh, what are the reasons why things happen to us in life? And she shot and killed someone. Uh, it seems from the story to have been an accidental shooting. She, uh, you know, was in an extremely abusive relationship. One, um, after another. one after the other, exactly and she's in prison, has been for many years and yeah. will continue to be
1: Many of the women that I work with suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder uh, the result of uh, you know growing up in their, within their violent families and or being married or in relationships with violent men they arrive at prison with some of the same conditions that, um, uh, that soldiers uh, develop on the battlefield and um, that's very deeply affecting uh, of them, and when you when you when you have corrections officers who are bellowing orders, or uh, and certainly you know not all of them are unkind uh, to the women, but uh, you know some people do uh, sort of uh, take advantage of the power uh, that they have that the uniform mm-hmm. the gives them. So in some ways, the um, the prison experience for some women is like uh, being under the thumb of an abusive uh, and all powerful. Um, personage as well.
0: And now we have this incredible book. These women have been able to give voice to their lives, and now we're dealing with a lawsuit. I'm wondering if uh, you have any idea of how we can make things better. I mean, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this and the prison systems within this country.
1: Well, I think if we open our eyes and uh, open our ears to, to these voices uh, that are coming out of the prison, I think uh, for many for many years, I was guilty myself of not being, not being so much, you know, insensitive, but just sort of being, you know, tuned out to what's happening. Uh, I, friends didn't realize that we had abandoned um, the concept of rehabilitation to the, to the extent that we had. So I think awareness is the first is the first thing, and then of course, awareness without action doesn't mean a whole lot. And so I think either we can accept what's happening with our prisons. Our prisoners,
0: or we can reject.
1: You know, because prison, after all, is a reflection of what our society wants.
0: What can we do then?
1: You know, there's a really strong uh, charitable piece to the profits from this book. To book sale is going uh, to an organization called Interval House, which uh, service provider for uh, women and children uh, who are the victims of domestic violence.
0: So. And you have waived any fee that you would be getting.
1: provider uh, for women and kids in, in the state. Has there
0: been something in your life, Wally, that has been a catalyst and somehow enabled you to continue forward or inspired you in some way or, or just changed you?
1: Yeah, you know, I, when I look at the, uh, <laughs> at the long arc of my life and, and I, see that, uh, I see that sort of double whammy, that double blessing of uh, having uh, my work selected for the Oprah Book Club as wonderful and, and staggering as that was, you know, that really, really nice piece of good luck and good fortune, it really began to make me question, first of all, why this had happened to me, and secondly, what my responsibility was mm. uh, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I know many writers who have who worked just as hard and have published wonderful books, um, and so I began to question, okay, well, you know, if if this has happened to me, what should I do with it? And, uh, and the answer that uh, um, has been to give back.
0: Wally, thank you so much. I've been speaking with writer Wally Lamb about his book, Couldn't Keep It to Myself, Wally Lamb and the Women of York Correctional Institution, Testimonies from Our Imprisoned Sisters, Regan Books. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Mahalia Jackson, Couldn't Keep It To Myself. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels.
1: Hi, I'm Jason. You've been hearing a lot of me because our volunteers are all at home. But some hosts who would usually be here live are now sending in fresh recorded DJ shows, including Ramble Tamble, Ballads and Banjos, Neonatal Pulse, Living Jazz. Heck, Old School Sessions is live from a remote location every Saturday. Our schedule is changing as we do what we have to do to keep you informed. But we also want to keep you entertained, keep you enriched, and keep you company. So hang in there, and thank you so much for listening.
0: WJFF, Jeffersonville, W233AH, Monticello.
1: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Dr. Larry Brilliant. Outbreaks are inevitable. Pandemics are optional. In the spring of 2017, at a release party for his book, Sometimes Brilliant, he sketched out the extraordinary voyage from civil rights movement to med school to helping out as physician during the occupation of Alcatraz by the Indians of all tribes. In the Bay Area, Larry Brilliant connected with the psychedelic and music counterculture. He followed the hippie trail from London over the Kaiba Pass to India with his wife Elaine, Wavy Gravy, and the Hog Farm
0: Commune. Neem Karoli Baba, one of India's best-known spiritual teachers,